0: If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to turn in the word of God to 2nd Corinthians. 2nd Corinthians. And if you don't have a copy of the word with you, there should be a Bible in the pew near you. Let me add an encouragement as well. This comes as a pastoral encouragement. This is not representing the consistory as a whole. I don't speak as an apostle here, uh, but an encouragement Many of you know I personally do use a device throughout the week for Bible reading. I find it useful for the way that I work. I also use printed versions of the word. There's not one right thing here. But I would encourage you, especially if you have children, to consider if there's one day a week that you use a printed Bible, that it be on Sunday. Many of you, I know, that use your phone. You find that very convenient. There are a couple of reasons here. This is just pastoral wisdom. One is the fact that This is the only way that most people will become familiar with where things are at. Where it's at? In relation to the whole. I could say a book, and many people, I wouldn't be surprised, wouldn't even know if it's Old or New Testament until it's said to them. So that's one reason. Another is it minimizes distraction. Not everybody deals with this in the same way. And I'm not asking you to judge the person next to you who has a device out to assume that they're looking at sports or something else. I'm talking about your own tendency to distraction your own tendency to, to distraction. And there, I would have to say, when I have a device on in church, I very much feel distracted, not to go onto a browser or something, but definitely to, I don't know, look at the calendar and other stuff. So this is an opportunity for you to also place yourself as much as possible in a, in a situation of minimal distraction. That being said, I trust you're now at Second Corinthians, and chapter 5. And this morning, we are continuing through a series looking at... Certain pictures the Bible has that describe the people of God. Each of these gives us insight about the church, how the church relates to Christ, how the church relates to one another, how the church relates to the world. And this morning we come to an image that is spoken about in the context of a pastor addressing a congregation, some of whom he knows may not be believers, and that's the reality. When we bring people together, even if it's just two or three people, we have to acknowledge the possibility. Not everyone who gathers in the name of Christ or among believers does, in fact, know the Lord Jesus Christ. We should never take it for granted, even if we render a judgment of charity when we speak with people. We're not constantly shedding doubt upon their profession, but we're aware of that. And so Paul is going to make an appeal to this congregation to whom he's written a letter In the first century A.D. Let's hear together the word of the Lord beginning at verse 10 of chapter 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Heavenly Father, we appeal to you this morning in Christ's name, trusting in the power of your present Holy Spirit to work in us those good things which you desire and deserve. We ask this morning that you would preserve us from error and lead us into truth. We pray that you would incline our hearts to be receptive, if necessary, even to be reconciled to you. We ask for these things in order that you would be glorified, that we would be built up, that your world might receive the service you desire of us. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In this passage, we encounter a very important word as you consider what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. We encounter the word ambassador in verse 20. Think for a moment about what an ambassador is. And I know that there are children here, and some of those children may not even know. And I'll tell you very plainly. An ambassador is a person. A person who has been chosen by the person or people in charge to go out and to speak on their behalf. To seek the things that those ones who sent them desire. So an ambassador has been chosen by a ruler or a government in order to represent the interests of the sending party. To declare their message, not to be self-seeking, not to simply please people, but very much to be in service of that sending ruler or government. You Think about the kinds of services rendered by ambassadors throughout history. To go into a city, perhaps a great peril to his own life, and declare these are the terms of peace. To be an ambassador at many points in history, in some ways today, can be a very dangerous job. Because that foreign people might want to demonstrate what they think about the kingdom upon the ambassador. And yet the ambassador can't be driven by cowardice, must be faithful to the message. That message may be a great message of peace, that we're willing to be reconciled. It may be great news of opportunities. And yet through misunderstanding or malice, the receiving party, that foreign people, might express their anger upon them. Typically, an ambassador does not go alone into a place. Throughout the ages, usually, ambassadors are sent at minimum as pairs, but more often as whole groups of people, and we call this an embassy. A whole group of people go, and there may be that one or several persons who we are more familiar with, kind of the spokespersons, but then there are all those people who do the groundwork, the legwork of bringing meetings together, helping, say, transfer persons in who would like to go from being members of that kingdom into being citizens of this kingdom. There are all kinds of people involved in this work. Now, what kingdom does the apostle have in view? And he says, we are ambassadors. He says very plainly in verse 20, we are ambassadors of Christ. Whatever citizenship you may hold in this world, It is secondary to your heavenly loyalty. And that is a message which we can amazingly state with a reasonable confidence at this time of not facing great reprisal, right? And yet you can't say that in many places in the world. And that has in part to do with our background, our heritage in the faith. But Philippians 3.20 says it very plainly, and Christians have given their lives for this claim. Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, not just Savior, Lord. More than even President. The President of the United States does not have autocratic authority to do whatever he wishes, contrary to law. Christ is our law and all his ways are righteous and he has a claim over every aspect of our life and so we are ambassadors of Christ but I lay it before you as a question are you an ambassador it's possible to read this text and come to the conclusion that Paul is simply talking about himself and maybe the people on his missionary team relative to the Corinthian church Paul is the ambassador they are the people just being spoken to To an extent, there is truth in that, because again, in this moment, he's addressing people, some of whom may not be believers among them. And at the same time, too, you have to understand something of who Paul is. Paul was set apart by Jesus Christ to be an apostle, as it were, born out of time, born late. He didn't have the same development that some of the other apostles had. He was chosen directly by Christ after the resurrection, And when Jesus calls him on the road to Damascus, he tells him, you are going to go before kings and rulers in the world. So Paul already knew he's going to be an ambassador in a very special, a very distinct way. On top of that, Paul's ministry really gets going when the church in Antioch recognizes his gifts and sets him and Barnabas apart. And this is the way that the the Lord ordinarily works. He has a call upon someone, but he works through the church to confirm that. And so there are those people who are, especially in a vocational sense, set aside from ordinary responsibilities of vocation. They don't have to depend upon secular employment for their income. We think of ministers, missionaries. And yet that does not absolve the rest of us from being part of this embassy. If you take nothing else this morning, you need to recognize the logic in this text does not exclude you from your ambassadorial calling You have a high calling in Jesus Christ simply by virtue of being brought into his kingdom as citizens. Verse 17, look with me. Follow the logic in verse 17 and 18. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Anyone. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's no intervening person. Paul doesn't insert in there me and Silas or me and Barnabas. The anyone in Christ is still addressing the same people as given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so we all have a different role to play. But we are all emissaries. We are all ambassadors. It's comparable to the way that the New Testament speaks about teachers. The book of James says not many of you should be teachers. But then Hebrews says, by this time, all of you should be teachers. This is not a contradiction because they're speaking about different aspects. In the context of Hebrews, it's the ability of every person to communicate the milk of the word. Look at the context. Everyone should have an ability to lay out the fundamentals of the faith in a plain way. To put the cookies on the bottom shelf for the kiddos. But that does not mean that everybody has a formal calling to be a spokesperson for the church in that sense. But we still are all ambassadors. And so the Holy Spirit is calling you this morning to look at the church in a special way. To picture the people of God as an embassy in the world. Do you think of the church in that way? We've seen previously that the church is a flock and so we follow Christ. We've seen that the church is a mother, and so we nurture the children of God. We've seen that the church is a bride, and so we are preparing ourselves, beautifying ourselves in holiness for that day when we look upon him in person. But here this morning, you are ambassadors working together in an embassy in the world. And so we need to understand together, what are some of the core responsibilities that that means for your life? Some of you are very aware, but you need to be brought back to greater faithfulness. Others of you don't know, and you're learning for the first time, and the Holy Spirit is preparing you for a life of ambassadorial service. As we consider these things, we'll look at them under three main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. The first is this. Your first core responsibility, ours as the embassy of the Lord, is to make God's appeal to the world. That's the immediate context here, and if we lose sight of this, we have forgotten our mission. We are making an appeal. Verse 10 gives us some sense about that appeal. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. A day of judgment is coming for all human beings. We have been given a rational conscience, the ability to discern good and evil. Even if our judgment is clouded, we still know the distinction exists. And even when we know it exists, we very frequently act against it. Imagine an ambassador going over to a people who is living in rebellion and telling them, you have to understand, you will not escape. All of you will be rounded up. All of you will be brought to trial." And the judge is just. There will be no bribes. The standard of the judgment is not a curve. It is by that man, Jesus Christ, who never sinned. Romans chapter 1 and 2 lays this out very plainly. It says, there is therefore no one who has done good. There is none righteous. And that's the struggle here. There's the temptation in all of us, and definitely the overwhelming concern of the world, to be vindicated before god to be accepted on the basis well if he does judge i trust i'm good enough that i'm mostly good not mostly bad and so you judge yourself next to the worst people you aren't going to be judged compared to the worst you're going to be judged compared to the best to jesus christ and the message of the church is that the only hope for the lost person is perfect full amnesty Amnesty is an official declaration that none of your crimes are going to be held against you. The message of the church is not to go out into the world and tell people that they need to become good and they'll be accepted. Implicitly, if we only live good lives but we don't declare that message of the gospel, we confuse the world because they take it as, well, I guess I just have to be good. That's what Christians are. i got to be good. The message, the appeal, must be combined with holiness, Holiness lends credibility, but it is not the appeal. Look at the appeal as it's described in verses 19 and 21, the the ground of the appeal. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is Paul saying when he says that, in some sense, Christ was made sin? This is a Hebraism. It has to do with his Hebrew background. He's a Jew. And in the Old Testament, you have a word for sin, to do anything against God's law. And then you have a word for the offering that was made to atone for sin. And those are the same word. The offering to atone for the guilt of sin is so closely identified with the sin that they're treated under the same word. And all of that was by God's design for your great and everlasting comfort. That Christ himself has become so identified with the sins of the guilty. That we can trust that in his death our sin is done away with. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God has taken the initiative to reconcile the world, that is, those who are considered in their sins, to himself. And verse 7 says, or rather verse 11 says it's our duty to proclaim this. Look with me there, verse 11 and 19. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord that is a holy reverence for God in this judgment to come, we persuade others. And even think about that word persuade. We don't just sit back and trust that God has elected whom he will and they're going to stumble upon it. There's an active engagement in the process of reasoning and emotions to gain the attention to bring someone to agreement. The Holy Spirit works within God uses means. Verse 19, He has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Not the angels. And I think in some ways they'd be better at it. We would think anyway. An angel would show up and just scare the dickens out of people and they'd say, There's God in judgment coming. But the angel is not going to transform the heart of the person and the angel can't bear witness to experiencing grace. We can. The angel can tell them a lot about holiness to a degree that we don't yet know. The angel cannot say, I have experienced a grace that surpasses my deepest hopes. We do. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And this is to lay it firmly in the court of the world to say, As you experience the proclamation of the gospel, it is not God who needs to do something at this point. He's calling you to turn, to repent, to believe, to take him up on his generosity in Christ. And so we must declare this. And so I appeal to you at this first point to let the weight of this responsibility settle upon you a little bit. Let the weight of this settle upon you that God did not choose Angels, he's chosen us, the church. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, necessity is laid upon me. Woe am I if I do not preach the gospel. Now there is a distinction. He is an apostle called to a public-facing ministry. He occupies a pulpit wherever he goes. And I would not have you to go out of here and feel like if you don't go to the street corner and start speaking to everybody, every day, everywhere you go, that you're necessarily in sin. As we read through Acts, and as we read through the epistles, it seems in my judgment that the ordinary Christian, for the most part, has a different responsibility, a responsibility that is primarily reactive, primarily organic. You think of the words of Peter. In 1 Peter he says, Be prepared to give everyone an answer for the hope that lies in you that does imply a willingness not to shy away from that answer when they ask and to desire that they would ask. Sometimes that's the fault we fall to. I'm willing on a technicality. If they ask me, I will say, but I sure hope they don't ask. That's not an ambassadorial mindset. We long for them to ask. We create the opportunity, the relationship, where it would be natural for them to ask. And as God gives us the ability, we even go on the offensive. We ask them things. But here, our first, our core responsibility is to make God's appeal. That is not our only duty. It's not our only duty. Think of the duties of ambassadors in the world. In fact, maybe you're familiar with this. Many places grant something called diplomatic immunity. It's controversial, for good reason. Diplomatic immunity means that while the diplomat is living in that other country, let's say uh, an American goes to... Belgium and while in Belgium this American diplomat has immunity that means that they will not be tried for any crimes committed while there usually this is under the expectation the diplomat is the best and the brightest and is going to do all the right things history is full of terrible examples of this being taken advantage of the church does not have immunity to live how she wants because of the gospel the gospel Gives her freedom to trust that Christ is more and more transforming us. But if we live that way in the world, if we live like we can do anything we want and there will not be consequences, will that not reflect upon the embassy? How many people dislike countries specifically because of their experience of the diplomats? And so, our second duty is to embody the laws and the customs of our kingdom. Where is our citizenship lodged? Heaven. Where is our hope? The new creation. And so we live as new creations in this age. Verse 17, look with me again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new is come. We need that on our eyelids, on the inside. Whenever we blink, we are reminded of this. I'm not the old person that I feel like I am each day. I have been brought into Christ. And I have the Holy Spirit. And my destiny is a very different kingdom than this world. And the way that I live has to be patterned upon that age, not this age. And it needs to be distinguishable from the world. A real antithesis. A real difference. We are for the world in the sense that we desire their salvation and good. But we are not of the world. A real difference. Look at how this is reflected, for instance, in sacrificial service in verse 14. Verse 14. The love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The context of Paul's speech here has to do with the fact that there were other people professing to be apostles and teachers of the church who were not. Who were driven by fleshly desires to get the money, to get the admiration of the church. And this has been a problem throughout all of history. Paul says, no, the love of Christ controls us. And we don't care what people think about us as long as you understand the sincerity of our service. Now, under the Old Covenant, God's people had a somewhat comparable mission to embody the ethos of the age to come, to demonstrate the holiness of the Lord. You might wonder sometimes, why do they have all those laws that seem perhaps confusing to us? And those laws have to be understood not only in light of the New Testament, but also in light of the Old Covenant world that they lived in. In their own time and place, those laws stood out as much better. I don't ask you to turn there, but listen very carefully To Deuteronomy, verse 5 of chapter 4. Moses speaking says, See, I have taught to you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep these laws and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? In other words, the idea was that God's people would reside in one geopolitical location in the world, and the way they lived among one another would show the surrounding nations something about what the everlasting kingdom, the true paradise, will be. In this sense, it's been described as centripetal under the old covenant that is supposed to draw the nations towards that point. In this sense, the new covenant is superior. Israel largely failed, God's covenant. People largely failed to live up to what they were called to. But in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the gift of the tongues of all the nations... The point is to signal something. I'm now sending my church out. And think of these thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of local churches all around the world gathering even this very day. Little embassies set up in every land. Little communities that give a taste of what the age to come will be like. You can't confuse holiness of itself with the gospel But the gospel in God's work becomes attractive and desirable to those whom he's calling as they look upon how this is lived out in the church. And so I put it to you whether or not this is one of our goals as a church. In terms of why we seek holiness. To be compelling. That the world would look upon us and say that is, now it's not perfect, but compared to life in the world, this is a great place to be. That's a question I ask visitors sometimes. If I notice that they've come here three, four, five times, they often have lots of questions about our doctrine. Things that they know at this stage they don't agree with. But I ask them, why do you keep coming? Why are you here? Frequently, and I say this to the credit of God's work among his people here, frequently the answer is the same. Something is different here. I feel loved. I feel like the things here matter. I don't know if I believe them yet. But I feel that the people here love one another, and my question is whether or not there's a place for me here as well. Our church, I have heard, has not always had that reputation to the same extent. And we should never be satisfied either and say, well, we've arrived. All of us are in a process of learning, and sometimes we get burned, and it's hard. But we have a calling to embody the laws and the customs of the new creation. Third and finally, and this is closely related, closely related, A core responsibility of the church as ambassadors, the church as embassy, is to provide asylum and transition. Asylum and transition for would-be citizens of the heavenly kingdom. I want you to imagine this for a moment. Think how refugees often come to places, and we hear about it in the news right now. Tens of thousands of people rushing across Ukraine towards Poland, hoping to find refuge. Refuge. And America has been a bastion of refuge for a long time. How do they often come? Often they come with little or nothing material to offer. Often they come not knowing the language. Often they come not knowing the culture. They come knowing one thing. I want something of the kind of life the people there have. Now imagine that these people come to the embassy seeking refuge and the embassy contrary to its orders says maybe out of prejudice maybe out of malice for things that have been done against that embassy no go away and come back when you have something to offer go away and come back when you can speak our language our way and yet the church throughout the ages has at times done this the local church has done this Where persons come in and they are being drawn by the Holy Spirit towards the kingdom of Christ. But if they don't speak the language, maybe they speak a different language. and Their mouth is still struggling with old habits of foulness or of theological inaccuracy, etc. They get kind of knocked on the knuckles. Think of all that Jesus was aware that was wrong in the apostles while they were yet disciples with him. Every time they misspoke. And yet we gather that they loved him. They respected him. They desired his company. And so on the one hand, we have to maintain standards. On the other hand, we need to be the kind of place that's permeable for the outsider seeking grace. That doesn't mean all of one or all of the other. It means everything together. And that's a high calling. We don't stop using words like justification. But that doesn't mean that we should be annoyed when we hear it for the nth time, an explanation, right? That's part of being a permeable church, and not just in the context of the church service, but in our life outside of here. And I'll speak very frankly on this. It is not helpful to the mission of the church overall when we go straight to secondary or tertiary issues. Things are not nearly as important on our first conversations with strangers in this church, As a pastor, I plead with you, don't do it. Don't assume people share your every view on third-level issues. There's a place for that conversation. But part of being receptive is by communicating those things which are core to the church, those things apart from which you are not a Christian, and carrying ourselves to those people in a way that is for them, even as we may be against certain aspects of who they were. The old has passed away, The new is come. I no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. I regard them for who they have been called in Jesus Christ, who they're becoming, the person that we see in the future standing in glory, Christ's arm around them. Not who they are right now, because if you regard them that way, this church will never grow. It'll shrink. And every church in this world the same. The church is a place to the shock of the disciples where the Samaritan woman could come where Cornelius, the Gentile, could be welcomed. And this is not by forfeiting the gospel, but by welcoming people to the gospel as ambassadors. One major obstacle to that I'll put before you is, it's structural. There's no easy answer. I don't have the answer for this. But the way that people learn the language, and I I, I mean the whole culture when I say that, The way that people become discipled and learn to obey all that Christ has commanded, it can't be just up here, and I know you know that. The people who often need it the most, who need discipleship, and by discipleship, I don't mean a 10-week program. When Jesus made disciples, he spent three years night and day with them. There are a few people besides your own kids that you can spend night and day with. And so it might take 10 years of a couple days a week or one day a week. The only way to do that is to spend time to open your lives to the people who are not in your own family and to make them your family, if they're willing. And not just you. This isn't just the burden of, you know, 10% of the church are disciplers. There are some people who have certain gifts, you know, a teacher. There are other people who have administration. Everyone is a discipler. Everyone is an ambassador. Everyone has a heart to bring in people and help them transition. If not, we miss our mission. By way of conclusion, I just want to encourage you with things that may help drive you into this. One, think frequently. Ask God to help you think frequently on the mercy that you have received. Usually, nations send their best and their brightest or most persuasive to be ambassadors. And the Father sent His own Son into the world. And they did not receive His message. We, we crucified Him. We humans, we sinners... And three days later, he's back saying, the offer is still on the table. Everyone who believes upon me, I will receive, but that offer will not be forever. There's a time. Today is the day of salvation. And in your life, that has come to you. God sent his son, and he sent his Holy Spirit, and he sent his church. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, understand the goodness that has been shown to you. That while you were yet an enemy, Christ died for you. And that should drive us to a sense of being drawn into such a high privilege. We were not the best and the brightest. That's part of Paul's point. He says, I don't look like those super speakers out there. I don't come off as having all the skills that they do. But he had the work of the Holy Spirit and the calling of God. And this should then drive us. Even this week, I imagine some of you saw images. What comes to mind to me? Our embassies throughout the world, Russian embassies where people took red paint and splashed it on the gates. And of course, this was an accusation an accusation that people had failed to secure peace and that innocent lives had suffered. I don't know very much about politics. I do know what the word says on this matter. Compare the words of the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, verse 26. Acts 20, verse 26. I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says before the Ephesian elders in that congregation on the last day he will ever see them in this earth... Humanly speaking, your blood is not on my hands because I declared the appeal to all, and the way of life was made known. 15 years from now, 20 years from now, 25 years from now, will there be blood on the doors of this church? Will we ever, as a church, become comfortable with a minister who doesn't proclaim hard and offensive truths about the gospel? Will we ever as a body, and again, I'm not saying that all of us have the same degree of calling to verbalize, but is that something we're longing for, or will that change? It has changed for many churches. You say, well, we want change. The only reason we don't change is because we bring these things up. Wherever I may go, I hope that this is always my heartbeat, but I could die in a minute. And our prayer together as a church is that we are helping to form the people who are going to be the ambassadors of the coming generation. That it matters more than slick talking, big Bible knowledge, whatever else. Or else we will give an account. We are received in grace. But Paul means something when he says, I am innocent of the blood of all. May we, may we be such a people. Let's ask the Lord's help. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us such a high calling to be ambassadors. We thank you that you came to us in Christ, that we have looked upon our Father, for truly Christ is of the same character and love. We ask that you would please transform us more and more to love this calling. If any are overwhelmed with it, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would lay upon them the words that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, and that it is he, not I, who do this work. Help us as a church more and more to love what we are. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.